welcome back to the DXM podcast. I am your host, Colborn Bell, and I am joined today by Katie Payton Hofstetter. Katie, welcome. Hi, Colborn. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you as well. Uh, we start this program in the same place, and that is giving our guests the space to talk about themselves. So anything you would like to share that would provide some context about you? Sure. Um, I'm a writer, curator, artist, um, general culture creator, organizer, multi-hyphenate. Um, and I um, some recent projects have included uh, an article I wrote called Bodies in the Blockchain, which was turned into a virtual exhibition called Lifelike, um, which was expanded into an exhibition presented in a gallery called Vellum. Um, also called Lifelike, um, which will travel in the fall to a university. So it's taken multiple forms. Um, and I've also co-founded several public art campaigns, um, especially focusing on artists working with emerging technology. And that's where my um, interest and focus is right now. Yeah, amazing. Um, I am super curious just very broadly interested in what emergent technologies you're excited about uh, and maybe some of the artists who are exploring these. Yeah, I am, I feel like there's a, a equal part excitement and fear. I think when I look at our sort of techno future, I feel a lot of anxiety about where things are going as well as excitement for, you know, unlocked potential. So, there's part of me that thinks where I feel the most anxiety, that's where I want to focus. Mm. And I think artists, um, you know, projects in the past, I've looked at artists who are working with AR, artists who are working with VR. Um, this past project has looked at artists who are minting biological genetic identity material on a digital ledger. Um, and I'm also, of course, very interested in how artists are creating machine learning models that don't look like the popular models that we see, because I feel like we're being asked to enter into a public debate with a really narrow lens on what machine learning is, um, sort of basically like, is chat GPT good or bad <laughs> when there are creative people, specifically a lot of the artists I'm talking to, who are presenting other types of systems and models that we could be talking about in a much more, um, to me, a, a much more exciting way. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna see if I can even begin to frame this the right way. You know, we have these incredibly emerging technologies. Um, there is also a deep care and concern uh, for, you know, a, a social aspect to this, you know, access to these technologies, um, like individual rights to, uh, you know, their own data, sovereignty, right to privacy, um, you know, and I think there's a common theme of, you know, amidst all of this, like, rapid accelerationism, the need to kind of slow down and assess, assess and, and be critical and ask the questions. Um, I don't know what the question is, but how do you even begin to like balance these two? 
I, for me, it's looking for better models. I, um, in this past exhibition, I, I focused really specifically um, in Lifelike on, and on Bodies in the Blockchain, the article on artists who were using themselves to stress test this new technology. And I, I think, like starting generally and getting more specific, like I'm interested in how we as like artists, writers, multi-hyphenate culture creators um, are looking at emerging technology and the systems around it and stress testing it with a creative lens. So not following the manual, but following curiosity, creative impulses, own experiences, and sort of mapping the manifolds, like changing the viewing angle and um, asking where it stops working or starts doing something really weird within this like impossible to imagine hyperdimensional space that potentially bounds these technologies and systems. Um, so when I wrote Bodies in the Blockchain over the summer for Right Click Save, I got to interview a lot of artists about how they were minting biological and genetic material aspects of their bodies. And I realized what they were really doing was probing what the future was going to feel like um, for our, our bodies as well as our minds. Um, if you can you know, separate those, arguably you can't, but um, we think of it that way. Uh, and also how much bigger this question is than we might realize. And I can talk about that article if you like, or am I answering the question? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think, um, like we're presented with this idea of the cybernetic future, right? That we will be increasingly melded with machines, that Elon Musk will have a neural link that just, you know, is capturing and recording all of this data. Um, and at the yeah. same time, it seems kind of, you know, far off, although, you know, we carry supercomputers in our pockets and are constantly connected and wired to all of this. Uh, but I think that it is generally, for most people, a detriment to their detriment and, and a burden. And I think we're all simultaneously hoping like for a release from these things. Uh, again, I don't know if there's a question there, but no, I, yeah, I, I, I do think it's so urgent right now to like to explore how technology is breaching and blurring the boundaries of our bodies if those boundaries exist. And I think you can say that that maybe it's a little naive to to say there's a boundary between our you know, physical and digital cells, for example, but I think sometimes it's useful to draw a line in order to talk about it or to look at where artists are, you know, different artists are drawing that line in order to talk about it. And I, I am interested in techno-futurist narratives, um, but so often I feel like they seem to imagine that we might end up being some version of like mental activity floating in identical vats of goo. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think as our technology, you know, continues to invade the boundaries of our bodies, you know, already very much happening medically. And um, you mentioned Neuralink and other like, you know, BCI brain computer interfaces. Um, I think as we embrace the power of these new abilities, we can't 
separate our minds and our bodies and we can't stop foregrounding the fact that not all bodies are the same and some identities are empowered or elevated through these systems while others are systematically targeted or made invisible, subject to violence. Um, mm. And I think a lot of our systems don't acknowledge that. There's this idea of the, um, you know, a lot of the artwork in this show actually um, is, you know, I think about Sammy Wheeler and Mistress Fix's piece, Impressions, um, where they created a, um, a, like a hybrid interactive performance documentation piece um, that has to do with turning over control over and over and over again. And it was a performance uh, that Sammy designed for Mistress Fixed Adam to perform upon her in the gallery. She was nearly naked wearing a, um, a mask. She said um, that she couldn't hear anything or see anything. And it was the most comfortable she'd ever felt in a gallery opening in her life. <laughs> um, everybody sort of think relates to. Yeah. Um, and then after the performance, uh, during the performance, Sammy invited the audience to take crowdsourced documentation to take cell phone videos. They posted videos to the internet and then sent them to Sammy and Mr. Spix. And um, it sort of, turns over the control yet again. Um, and then Sammy took back control of that documentation and presented it, you know, created masks and uh, created this video that was then presented back in the Vellum show. Mm. Um, and so reflecting on how this like depth of experience is flattened uh, when it's represented on our screens and mm. um, measured in impressions and, you know, also drawing attention to the precarity of digital representations for trans people and sex workers. Um, and something that really stands out about it also, I think is this, you know, coming back to this idea of um, these technologies we're talking about, we have this default idea of the, um, the objective observer, like the gaze you might say, or like even the, you know, when you're reading a piece that is written in third person, there's an idea of who this objective authority is and we don't we don't necessarily think about what the identity of that authority is but it it really is um it's not trans it's not a sex worker um it's probably not female or non-binary like it the you know when we talk about the white male gaze i think it it extends into the way that we you know, look at who is the author of a text or who is in control of a, a technology system. Who is it made for? Um, I feel like I've gotten far away from the question. This no, that's okay. I mean, it's it, it's asking uh, a whole lot of other questions that I'd like to dig into, but I'd love to let you finish. If you know, I think I think coming just the point I was coming back to is like we know that technology is not neutral but I don't know that we always think about all of the different things that that means, like how deeply those fingers extend into every part of our experience, that like that non-neutrality. And I think the, the scary thing as these emergent technologies continue is how much deeper into ourselves they will continue to go. Um, we know the, the biases that exist within the data sets that are, you know, that is used to train and generate AI. Um, 
and you know everything from the, the design of a VR headset, right to uh, well, I think it just it, I think it really just extends everywhere, and I think technology, uh, for the most part, despite preaching more of like an egalitarian narrative is actually very, very centralizing um, and like control of processing power would predominantly skew again, just like white male. So I, I feel this tension that I think you feel as well of, uh, you know, like runaway systems that are out of control that need some sort of pause like repositioning, re recomposing. Um, but I am, you know, a bit scared that they're like runaway trains. You know, an artist that I love to talk about in this context is Lauren Lee McCarthy, who created this series that began during the pandemic where she's looking at digital intimacy and thinking about what it feels like to want to just seek physical contact, physical proximity with the people you care about, but at the same time to know that that proximity could actually put them in danger and using technology um, to explore the idea of intimacy um, without putting expectations on what's going to happen. Um, she had two pieces in the lifelike show um, and uh, she actually had a piece in the lifelike show at Epoch. And then when we brought the show to Vellum, um, she developed a, a, a new piece. There's a total of, I think, three, four pieces. Um, sorry, I'm getting the number wrong. There are three in the Epoch show. And then she developed a new one for Vellum. So there's a total of four. And one of them is called sleepover and during the pandemic she would go to her friends houses and in her words gift them her physical body she would go and sleep on their lawn and they would only communicate by text and so there's there was physical proximity um but the all of the communication was mediated through technology and for the vellum show she turned it into an nft that could be purchased by a collector who would sort of basically like enter into her practice as this as a patron and have this experience you know that she's created um and something i thought was that just blew me away was each time this piece sells she'll do the performance again and to me that just speaks to like how deeply she's committed to having taking this experience as far as it will go and like learning everything she can from it. Um, and the other piece was called Good Morning, and it was a counterpart to a piece called Good Night, where every night before she goes to bed, she texts the owner of Good Night. Good morning, the owner of the piece has to open it and say good morning to it every day. And if they don't open the piece every day and greet it, then it dies. And the concept was so simple, but when people started you know, I feel like collecting is such a cliche word for this. When people started like bringing this into their lives, it was amazing to watch how they were responding. Like operator in Berlin, they were like, we have, we are devising a, you know, a device to keep this alive for generations. Um, and then, 
you know, another collector is like my main, you know, digital relationship. My first digital relationship was with Twitter. Every morning I open up Twitter and I'm going to like change my habit to open this piece, which is very beautiful mm. first in the morning. Mm. And then I'll open Twitter, um, you know, and, and trying to come up with a technology to keep it, you know, if they're, they're offline for a day, you know, for some reason, how to, you know, keep it being visited and cared for. And then it may be like my, one of my favorite reactions was um, Dina Chang said, you know, I have too much stuff in my life. And I think we can all relate to that. And it's not just physical stuff, it's digital stuff. And I, mm -hmm. I actually want to have a relationship to everything that is under my like stewardship, basically. And mm -hmm. like, this to me reminds me of like, that the things that, you know, the things in my life, I should care, I should care about them. Um, or, or maybe it's something that I, I shouldn't own at all. Um, so I am really intrigued by Lauren's work because she's, I, I do feel like she's playing with creating different systems that involve our like mediated experiences with each other through technology. And I think it, it just shows how if we're it, looking at what artists like her are creating, we can expand our idea of our techno future beyond just like, is anything beyond GPT-4 good or bad? Yes or no? <laughs> right, sure. I think um, this is this is definitely some things in there that I've been trying to reconcile with. I think the digital invites so much abundance. Um, the idea, or you know, potential for for meaningful connections for digital intimacy. Uh, but I think to your point, I've really struggled with like what are the things that I actually can't keep and put under my stewardship. And it just feels like when everything is moving so quickly, you just, you know, you never have the time. You never have the time to, to like recognize and, and curate and actually like bring your attention and appreciation uh, to, to these things that you already have. And yeah you know, just in all of this work that I've collected, seeing all these things, but like, yeah, just stopping and pausing and um, it's hard. It's hard. Because the artists are so good too, you know, <laughs> Yeah, they, they just, they create so much. There's so many, t I, I just feel like this space is continuing to unlock and inspire creatively so many talented people with so much to like share and give. It's really, it's really quite special. I agree. I, um, we, you know, we spoke before the podcast about how to describe, you know, communities become a dirty word. <laughs> um, yeah. but like how to describe, you know, is it, is it post-media? Um, I want to credit a conversation with Charlotte Kent for suggesting that word, which I do like. Um, what do we call the community that's doing this work? And it, it does feel like there is a different sort of support system. Um, like there, this is not really my 
focus, but I, I do like that I can register my patronage with an artist whose work I like for a couple of bucks, you know, just mm -hmm. sort of like officially, you know, beyond going on a studio visit and saying, I love your work. And um, maybe it eventually leads to a text or something that I can also like, um, that's a, I've been interviewing artists for like around 10 years and I feel like at the end of every interview, I always, this just sort of happened, but I would always end up asking artists, like, what do you want in the future? Like, what sort of art world do you want to be in or literary world? Like, what if, if you could control it, what would it look like? And they have lots of answers, but in that answer is almost always some version of, I want to, I would love to work more collaboratively. I want to work more mm -hmm. in community. Um, it's a, you know, this is often a lonely exploration. And I think that there's a lot of benefits to that, like to working alone. But um, then I also helped design a project for Apex Art a while ago. It was a high school program. And we had talked about sending me into high schools to talk about opportunities in the art world. And I'll just be like really honest. I was like, I would not be allowed in the door if I told you what <laughs> my real experience is. You know, it's like, it's bad. Like, yeah. this, you know, it, like their parents would need to sign a consent form. Like, um, For the truth, yeah. You know, like just, that's just being very honest. Um, and so I was like, I don't want to, I, I think their concerns are valid. And for me to come in and say, you all have these opportunities feels wrong. Like I would rather, um, and so I worked with Stephen. We sort of developed this, this idea where we would go in and we would ask them what they wanted. Like what if they, you know, we did mind maps and exercises and they answered questions and then eventually leading to them sort of saying, what, what sort of world do you want to go into? And the idea was we would like catalog all these models. And, um, and the, I found the same thing. Like they had lots of ideas about, you know, really great ideas about the world they wanted to enter, but there was always the like through line was like some element where they wanted to be in community and work collaboratively. Um, and I don't totally know where I'm going with this, except that I think something about web three has like picked up on that, mm. but in a really twisted way. Um, but I also think like, I really feel this in Los Angeles, like, there is this impulse to um i don't know there is this impulse of support and um you know being interested in helping each other and you know archiving maybe a a discipline that's very hard to archive um that could easily be lost um if you don't have the right operating systems or um you know if a project isn't written up uh you know a couple operating systems later, it's lost forever. And um, yeah, I, there, it does feel like something special is happening around that, that I'm like, I haven't felt before. And it's, it feels good to be a part of that. And I also feel wary that it's tied up in these like commercial ideas of community that are being promoted by um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is 
it, it's, it's so much of a, like a reflective mirror, right? Like whatever you, you kind of wish to see is, is pretty much what you will see. Um, yeah, the a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, crypto from the beginning has always been a great way to incentivize and bootstrap communities, collective communities, um, generally around kind of ideas. Now, uh, you know, most of these are rather flash in the pan or lean substantially marketing over substance. Um, it's been nice to begin to attach like visual identity, uh, especially like the identity of an artist to these, to the token, uh, because that unlike most of these, you know, financial games that are being played is something that is more, I think, trusted and people take, you know, their credit, their persona, they lay it out on the line, their reputation. Um, and, you know, there's, there's something much more genuine about that and how like that humans values relate to like value is another like interesting question and how these things get valued. Um, but again, it's, it's a very, you know, weird and wild and speculative thing to begin to even play in this arena. It's interesting, like the word speculation, like I've had so many associations with speculative, with like speculative futures, like Christian Paul exhibition at the new school, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I, you know, and of course, like this is tied with speculation is also, um, you know, has its applications in finance. And I know that art and money are inextricably tied. But I think I do feel a lot more comfortable talking about the artists' projects because I think a lot of what I've been working with, um, you know, speaking specifically about the most recent project with Lifelike, I think the artists are using blockchain as a digital ledger um, as a way of talking about, uh, you know, surveillance. Our you know phones harvest information about our bodies and behaviors by default. Um, are, you know, every swipe movement and like private message is um, under surveillance and the idea of logging things on a digital ledger like functions symbolically in that way. Um, I don't feel like this needs to be tied to crypto, but at the same time, I do understand that art is, you know, we live in like, you know, in extractive capitalism, like everything is taking place in this capitalist system. Artists need to survive, artists need to make money. Um, if tying art to a currency is helping artists survive and be able to, you know, make a living, um, then, then that's what exists. Um, but I do have a hard time feeling loyalty to any, you know, particular monetary system. Um, especially knowing that, you know, just like fiat, the majority of the holders of crypto are a very small number of people. And, you know, that like sinking feeling that, you know, that like the art and culture side is, also <laughs> being used to you know bolster the value um of those of those major holders so uh yeah there's a bit of a devil's bargain in that <laughs> there is 
I don't know. How do you feel? I mean, look, you know, I, uh, I come from a, a finance background, right? And I understand because of this, again, it is extractive capitalism, extractive capitalism rules the world. Uh, but you know, and, and then it's like, it's almost to the point where it's inescapable, right? So the proposal of new models, new systems, like the thing, you know, we can either like accelerate through to the point where it gets so bad that it has to collapse, um, or we can build parallel architectures. Uh, and I'm all for personally the idea of building parallel architectures so that mm. people have places to go when inevitably the thing does collapse. Um, because I truly believe the, the system that we have is completely and inherently unsustainable. Um, and I generally consider capital to, you know, people talk about free flowing capital. I believe capital to be cement. I believe it like enshrines and ingrains and holds institutions and structures in place and gives them rigidity that doesn't allow anything to change. Uh, and I believe that like the basis of, the currency holds all the values. So, you know, like 80% of uh, international trade is settled in US dollars. So we have to like, look what are the, the actual values of the US government and how are we complicit in supporting those values by like earning and spending and, you know, supporting that system. So a lot of looking at those values didn't align with my values and I think you know, it I, it got closer with cryptocurrency, but it's not perfect. So, yeah, I think if I can give a couple of examples that come to mind, like I mentioned earlier that I'd worked on a couple of public art campaigns, and one was the Climate Clock Monument right. in Union Square, and we basically re the idea was we didn't realize this in the beginning, but it was really to remonument time and how we think about time and to replace a, a countered sort of like solar Gregorian calendar, a uh, very human oriented calendar to call it planetary time. Like this is the amount of time we have left, um, you know, to act in time on the climate crisis to, you know, before we've locked in 1.5 degrees Celsius, like centigrade, which unfortunately I, I think we're there, but um, you know, and, and I should mention, we worked with the artist who created the metronome, which is Kristen Jones and Andrew Gonzel. Mm. Um, the next project I worked on was um, the Aurora Network, uh, formerly Make Us Visible. And we were inviting artists to create this network that would use AR to place new diverse and gender expansive monuments in public spaces and juxtapose them to statues of mostly white men. Um, and I think, you know, for both of these projects, who and what is honored in our public spaces you know, with swords or on 70 foot pedestals or 10 stories high over Union Square, it sends a message to all of us about what we value as a culture um, and that has power. So um, I do think it's possible as, artists and you know culture workers to try to imagine these systems even though it sometimes it feels like such a small um such small progress and i you know i also you know want to mention what a long tradition there is of artists working in ar to do this i think ar specifically has really been like powerfully used i think about 
Tommy Cotille and Lil Pappenheimer and Manifest AR. Um, this is not a new idea that we can use AR to, um, you know, create a, you know, prefigure a, a different kind of space. Um, and I can name two, uh, two examples from the Lifelike exhibition, two artists that I, I think are looking at two different sides of one new idea. Because you mentioned Neuralink um, and brain-computer interfaces are something I've been thinking a lot about. I um, For Bodies on the Blockchain, I interviewed Lance King, who had created a dashboard that basically tracked all of his vital signs. It basically showed that he was alive, if he was awake or asleep, if he was nervous, if he was, you know, sped up or slowed down or, um, and it, to create this, he basically used every tracker a human can place on their body. Like he placed on his body, including implanting an NFC chip in the soft tissue of his left hand. And also committed to, you know, he's like, if something new comes out, I will, you know, this, I, I will use it. I will put it on my body. I will apply it. It will go into this network. Um, for lifelike, he was also experimenting with these prototype brain machine interface helmets that were tracking his mental activity and taking that activity and turning it, you know, using an algorithm to turn it into a sculpture. And it took me some time to process this because I was stuck on the idea that, you know, what, what is it, is it reading your mind? Is it saying what you're thinking? Is it... Hmm. I, I didn't immediately like, understand the gravity, I guess, of just taking control of your own mental data and creativity. And there's, you know, at the same time, there's this long tradition of artists creating visualizations of creativity. And then also this idea of saying, this is my, my information. I have a, I have trouble with the word data. We can talk about that if you want to, but um, my like, you know, information about my experience and I'm using it as an artist. And if someone wants to make the argument to take it, um, I need to hear what that argument is. Hmm. Um, so it's sort of taking away the idea that by default, all of our experience is just scrapable. Um at the same time, there's also an artist, Edgar Fabian Frias, um, who created a piece called Kika. And it was looking at it, a different way of looking at our mental data. Um, and the piece that Edgar created was a Nirika, which um, is, uh, it's a sort of map. And this comes from, um, Edgar comes from the Weorican community. And these maps help us, they're sort of divining tools that help us locate ourselves in both like physical and spiritual reality. Um, and Kika translates to come closer or cuddle up. And it's a combination between like these very modern ideas of like glitch aesthetics and internet subcultures and abstract art incorporated into this map that um, you can stand in front of and have an experience where you're, you're locating yourself in space and time and spiritually and, um, it's a really, it's an experience I can't describe. It's very beautiful to sort of meditate with this piece. And it also draws attention to the difference between, you know, back to this idea of data, because, you know, if you're wearing an interface that creates lines and numbers and this list of something called data, you know, I think our DNA is the same way. This is suddenly scientific. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're t- like, if you're talking about other traditions, you know, it may be like meaningful transcendental experiences where you can absolutely see the effect of these experiences, but it's not uh, lines and numbers and translated as data, then it gets treated very differently and it isn't taken as seriously or it's exoticized or it's marginalized. Um, and it's, you know, to me, it's just another way of showing like we, we do have other ways of looking at, you know, incorporating other knowledge into different types of systems. Uh, it doesn't have to be, is it chat GPT or nothing? Like the, almost, almost the magic of the unobservable, uh, what it means to like have sensations and feelings that don't come down to actual like recorded science. Um, how do we begin to even like address and assess what it means to like be human and have these experiences? And uh, I think that goes back to, again, like a lot of the reason things are structured you know, by this this group or these institutions have these biases is because it is just, you know, from like power and violence um, and a history of all of this. So how do we begin to like get get to the other side of that as as humans and find kind of more of the, the things that like relate and, and connect? And uh, I don't know, I wonder if, if technology is like leading us there or if it isn't. Yeah, I, I, I like my best response is like, this is what brings me to be interested in how artists are looking at that. And I, right. um, I keep going back, like Carla Gannis, I just remember like many, many years ago, we had this like very like, germinal conversation where she was just talking about kicking the tires and looking under the hood and it um I've just never forgotten that idea and I think it goes even beyond that with like stress testing um what these technologies will feel like and I you know in this in this past project I just felt like I was tired of like theoretical discussions and I, I was I just thought it was so brave to talk to artists who were sort of just stress testing this on themselves um, yeah. and I should mention that this came out of conversations with my editor Alex Esterick at right click save um, and began with this commission which is really once I started talking to artists about this it was like I couldn't stop um, yeah. I can you know, thinking about how what you were mentioning about these systems, it's like I can name two more artists that are that I think of when you say that, um, which you know, Una and Laurie Baldwin, like what Una was doing, there's a video in the gallery and it's ostensibly about um, how you know the distribution of money, you know, she's using super rare as a um, the index but between male artists and then female artists, non-binary artists and trans artists. Um, and it's like, it's really very shocking. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that piece, that piece spread uh, is, is really incredible. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and on a larger sense, what she's also doing is like the, the creation of this character of Una, which is a pseudonymous artist. It, like it's also part of the piece. Like Una is embodying this like collision between supposedly progressive technologies that we were talking about in the beginning and like regressive ideas about gender. And you could, you know, expand this to other conversations. Um, I like at the same time, there's also um, Castles who's created the character of white male artist right. to, um, you know, I, I love Castles research process because it's so absurd that you're, you're sort of um, like laughing through tears. It's like bringing humor to like systemic oppression. And it's just, um, you know, people are probably familiar with the project, but for, um, for a month, they um, they'd researched the top grossing artists at auction, um, and in a sort of like twist on the you know Manzoni piece, um, where Manzoni sold off his own shit, um, Castles ate the same diet as these top grossing artists with the idea: um, if I eat the same shit they ate, can I make the same shit they made? Um, and as a transmasculine artist, Castles created this character, white male artist, um, and sold the work through that pseudonym, through Phillips and Stark at uh, Snark. Um, and it, they really they ate that diet every day and produced a can of shit every day. And um, those those cans of shit exist. They have like little velvet, um, you know, display, <laughs> very nice, <little laughs> beautiful <laughs> pedestals and. Um, so since the reveal that the artist is actually Castles, um, you know, there's sort of an additional layer of humor that we, I, I had a piece for Lifelike, which was called Special Shit, and it was a compilation of the entire project, and it was <laughs> extremely, exceedingly special and rare because it was from white male artists personal collection so very highly valued right. um and white male artists had valued the piece at a billion dollars um yeah. and it's you know, definitely i think the highest price you know work like i've ever been around so that was you know the aura of that was um very special <laughs> i love that yeah you know what i've what i've realized is i don't have any sort of uh like linguistic or mental framework for this conversation, right? I felt myself kind of struggling through it all. And I think you've been so helpful in just like bringing me back to the arts to like just ground it. Uh, because, and I think that's obviously the, the, like the point of good arts, right? Is, is yeah. to uh, not necessarily give the answer, but just to state the question again and again. And, yeah, I'm always somebody trying to like yeah. grasp for the answer. The answer doesn't exist. I don't even have the framework really to talk about it, but what we should be talking about is the art that probes the questions. Yeah, I um, Claudia Rankin actually pointed out this like genealogy of like quotations, if you say, like I think Dostoevsky wrote, we have all the answers. It's the questions we don't know. Mm. Um, and then James Baldwin, of course, like put it even better by saying, um, he wrote, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden by the answers. Mm. And I feel like, you know, I just like moderated this talk um, with Rafi Canadal and Paragmatal at Deitch. And 
surrounded by this Rafik Anadol exhibition, it was like, that is what I felt. Like, we know all the answers is the questions we don't know. Like, this is, this is where we find the questions. Um, and I think the questions are important because that helps us frame public discourse. It's not like, I don't think it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think it has to stay in like an elite art. Very easy for me to, to want to go into like a theoretical flight of fancy about how I think about all of these things. But like you're saying, I think by like, by looking at these concrete examples of like how artists and their practices really are thinking about, you know, this isn't a, it's not a game. Like it's not, um, it's, I, I love, I love all kinds of art. I love painting. I love drawing. I used to love to draw. Like sometimes I like making pretty things, but I think this work is so urgent because Mm. if you, if you spend time with it, I, I do think something that happens is like something inside of you pushes back against it. Like you have a response of, you know, if it's disgust or, you know, uh, revulsion or excitement. I mean, I think that's really where it is. Like that response you're having to work like this is exactly where the, you know, not to be, <laughs> not to be cliche, but like, that's where the art is. That's what's happening. Right. Um, and I like to encourage people to just like spend enough time with it to like feel something push back. And I think with all good art, that's been my experience. Yeah. You know, and I had this, good to this... That word. <laughs> I had this great master plan to uh, turn, you know, your, your, question that you ask everybody against you, which, uh, what is the art world that you want to see, if I remember correctly. Um, mm. But I think in this interview, you've answered it. So unless, <laughs> <laughs> unless you have a hot take on that, that'll be the, the last thing um, before we, we say goodbye. I do think, I do think I'm seeing like the way people, I think there's an urgency to these issues that people are rallying around that is what I want to see. Hmm. Right. Um, so it's, it's there. Um, there's one piece I didn't mention. And so I don't know if I should, or if this is a good place to end, it's up to you. Well, let's talk about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to leave that one poor person. It out. feels so. It's like we end it, and then I'm like, hey, please, <laughs> one more thing. I have to tell you. You have to know about this. Yeah, yeah. these when we were all flowers, and <laughs> it has to do with DNA. And I, when I wrote the article, I interviewed Rachel Rawson, who had minted her DNA, and she had minted it as a text file, the sequenced DNA. Um, and there's a there, you know, there was a, a power to that. Um, you know, and all the obvious implications of the fact that we do sell our, you know, genetic information every day and how invasive that is and what does it feel like to just literally look at what that, what that is. And she priced it at a million dollars. It wasn't meant to sell. It was meant to be, you know, a statement about how our, you know, tech, how invasive technology was in our bodies. And um, when I curated lifelike um jen lu was another artist who was working in like a very 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 similar vein and she had printed her dna and she created this piece 
called When We Were All, All Flowers, where she took that sequence DNA and she turned it, um, she sort of coded the AAGGTTCC, you know, it's shapes and colors to create this beautiful, like morphing shape that is like both a flower and a root system. And in the virtual exhibition, we, you know, we were like, where do you, where do you want it in the biosphere? And she was like, oh, I want it in the desert. Like, you know, talking to her recently, she's like, I think water is life. And, um, you know, the implications of that freezing water is freezing life. And she's, you know, working with the SETI Institute and talking about what's happening in Antarctica. Um, but the reason this piece was so powerful, there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons it's powerful to me, but one of them is, I, you know, I just think about how, we, first of all, just the fact that we can get that information about our DNA, about like this information about ourselves. Um, it's really so remarkable. I mean, it's a fucking miracle. And I think she's turned it into this like beautiful, wild visualization of resilience that like kind of captures the awe that we have this information. Mm. Um, and I, I do think there's something about maintaining that, like it's almost like a, you know, it feels like it's almost, I don't want to be like religious and call it holy, but it's like, this is really sacred information. And what are we doing with it? Um, and I, I love that piece is a sort of like figurehead for that, like really. Um, I don't know if that's a conclusion, but I, uh, yeah. Thank you. You've really given me, you've given me a lot to think about. My mind is going to absolutely be racing. Uh, I would love for you to just let people know where they can find more about you, your writing, any socials you'd like to share. Um, yeah, sure. My website is allnightbookstore.com and I, Katie underscore Peyton underscore on Instagram and the very dorky Hofstetter Katie on Twitter. Um, and this exhibition will travel from LA up to uh, Cal Poly in the fall of next year where it began as a virtual exhibition, then became um, a screen-based exhibition in Vellum with the interactive exhibition there as well. And then at Cal Poly, it's going to be more, we have more transmedia capabilities, so the artists will have the ability to sort of choose how they, you know, with this very conceptual work, you know, a lot of the pieces can exist in multiple formats, and so they'll have the opportunity if they want to expand how these pieces look, and that process is actually really exciting to me. So I'm... Um, Looking forward to sharing more about that. Super. Uh, I guess we'll say goodbye here. I want to thank you, Katie Payton Hofstetter, our guest, uh, Deminti, for putting us together. I'm Colborn Bell, and we will see everybody next time. Thank you.